Welcome back to Discovering the Jewish Roots. I'm Dr. Rick Wadge, and we're having too much fun looking at the cool things about God's Word. It's so much and so vast, so numerous. But we're going to try to go week by week and look at some of the elements that show us that the Word of God is, in fact, supernatural. It comes from God. And uh, so we're going to be looking at Psalm 22 this week, and we'll go as far as we can through it. And then if we need to, we'll let this flow into next week's study as well. But Psalm 22 is amazing. You know, as Christians, we look at uh, one of the quotes on the cross, which Yeshua, Jesus said, and he quoted from, remember now he's called the son of David, but he's quoting from King David himself. And King David wrote Psalm 22, and it's uh, recorded this way in, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27, starting at verse 45. It says this, this is the crucifixion is taking place from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus, Yeshua, he cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near, they heard this, they said, he's calling out to Elijah because in the Aramaic language, it would sound very similar, Eloi, Eloi, to the term used in Aramaic for Elijah. Now, what I want you to keep in mind is that when Matthew gives us the opening line of this psalm, it almost certainly indicates that Yeshua, that Jesus, quoted the whole psalm from the cross. When they give us the first lines, it typically is saying, this is kind of the index point. This is, this is what he was saying, but instead of writing the whole thing out, we know where to find it. So it indicates that most likely, almost assuredly, Jesus quoted the whole psalm as he was hanging from the cross. Okay, so we know the context. We know the crucifixion. We know he's quoting the son of David, is quoting from David in Psalm 22. So let's jump into Psalm 22. And I want to point out some of the most important things about the language of David and what he was trying to indicate about something that would take place in the future, and I think it's going to blow your mind. Psalm 22, we're going to start right at the beginning. That would be verse 1. For the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David, and then it, it starts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Ayeleth Shahar, the hind of the morning. That's where this whole thing starts. It's a title, by the way. It's not a musical instrument. So the first key in understanding the psalm is uh, to understand that it is a title, not a musical instrument. Second, Ayeleth Shahar is almost assuredly connected to the Chaldean paraphrase, which means the daily morning sacrifice. Now, wow, that's pretty interesting. Psalm 22, and that the very title is probably indicating the daily morning sacrifice. Okay, so let's break this prophetic messianic psalm down. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? 
Now the term forsaken is the Hebrew word azav, and it means to loosen, to leave, to forsake. But it's used in a very interesting way by the ancients that might just be of interest to us regarding the Messiah because the term azav is also used when a son leaves home to purchase a bride. That's from the ancient Hebrew lexicon of the Bible. When a son leaves home to purchase a bride. Wow! Talk about the implications of that. So Jesus is seen here prophetically as being this one who would come as the morning sacrifice that he left his home in heaven in order to purchase a bride. And we find that in the very first verse of this prophetic psalm. And by the way, as he's purchasing her, he's purchasing her through the losing of his own blood, the losing of his own life. And while he's doing it, literally while he's doing it, he's quoting the psalm that predicted it would happen. Wow. Then David goes on to say, why are you so far from saving me? If we read this literally, it's kind of shocking because the question in Hebrew is, why are you far from my Yeshua? Which by the way, is the real name for Jesus, Yeshua. Yehoshua is Joshua. Yeshua is the shortened term. It's the way we would say Josh. If we were to really translate the Messiah's name into English, it would be Rabbi Josh. The word groaning here is Shiagah, and it's used for the roaring of a lion, and among other things, it's a distressed cry, a moaning, given the context of the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's seen dying here, I would venture to say that it means it's the distressed cry or the roaring of a lion. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Psalm 22, verse 2. Oh my God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. To cry out is kara, and it means to call out or to summon someone when you're being accosted. Psalm 22, verse 3. See how graphic this is? Just amazing. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, you are the praise of Israel. Now this is very interesting imagery going on here. The Psalm says that even though this person who is being accosted cries out to Elohim, the creator of all, Elohim, he's not there. Then we have in the text that God is the Holy One. You get the imagery here? To be holy, kadosh, is to be set apart to be separate. God is holy. God is set apart. He's different from all others. But here it's literal as well because he's separate from the one who's calling out to him. Just something to think about. What separates a person from God? Well, we know. The Bible tells us it's sin. And we know that this is a prophetic psalm, which we don't have to guess about its focus because this psalm is about the crucifixion of the Messiah who became sin for us. So no wonder God was separate and called Kadosh, or holy. No wonder the Messiah would call out, why have you left me? Rabbi Paul, Rav Shaul, would write this 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, said this, God made him, Messiah, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, Messiah, we might become the righteousness of God. God could not be there for him because the Messiah became sin, and God is holy, God is kadosh, God is set apart, God is separate. Messiah became sin on our behalf. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Psalm 22, moving on now, verses 4 and 5. This, this psalm is so descriptive of what Yeshua did on the cross. In our, and you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. David says that the patriarchs put their trust in God. The term is, I love this term, batak. And it means to be confident or secure because of something or someone that you hold on to, or you cling to, or you confide in. The picture in Paleo-Hebrew indicates that this is an acronym because it's made up of three separate images. Check this out, this is too cool. So this term for trust is made of three images. Let's see how telling they are. The first is a house that you're secure in. That's in Paleo-Hebrew. That means a house, a bait. The second is a circle which surrounds you. And the third is a fence or a ladder which supports or protects you. Wow. And that is trust. In the Hebrew mind, in the ancient Hebrew mind, it's those three elements. Your house, that which circles you like a fence or or some kind of shrubbery that, that, that you protect the lambs within, and a fence or a ladder that supports you, that protects you. That's, in their mindset, the best way to describe trusting. Feeling safe because somebody has you. You can confide in them. You can hold on to them. You can cling to them. I love that. And that word for trust, batak, is used throughout uh, the Old Testament scriptures, specifically in the Psalms. David says, and Yeshua also says, Jesus says, and you delivered them. Palat, you made a way for them to escape. They cried to you and they were saved. Let's see if that comes up. Malat. And that's the picture of sparks leaping out of the fire. That's how they were saved. They leapt out of the fire. They, they were pulled out of the, of the midst of this turmoil going on, like, like the quickness of God taking believers out before the judgment, that kind of idea that he, he pulls you out of the situation. He pulls you into the ark. He, he pulls Rahab out of the, the destruction before the walls crumble in. Malat, verses six and seven. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses. When I'm a worm, 
David says, son of David says, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. Now, this is where, in my opinion, the detailed account of the crucifixion begins to be described by King David. This term for worm here that is used of the Messiah is the term tola. He said, David prophetically says that the Messiah is speaking and says, I'm a tola and not an ish. And to understand the Hebrew of this, it's very telling. A tola is a specific worm that has a specific look. And here it is. It's blood red. Yeshua was saying, Jesus was saying, I have the appearance of a bloody worm. One who crawls on the ground, not an ish, a spiritual man. A man who knows existence, a man who knows his meaning. He's contrasting the two. He's saying, no, I, I'm a bloody worm on the ground, but there's so much more in this. That's the appearance of a person who has been beaten from head to toe and one who is utterly beaten down physically and emotionally. And by the way, it was the smashed tola worm that was used for dyeing materials like royal robes. He makes us royal. He makes us priest, a priesthood. That means we wear royal robes, but they're dyed in the blood of the Messiah. Matthew 27, 28. And they stripped him, Messiah, and they stripped him and they put on him a what? A scarlet robe. He became a tola so that we could be covered in his blood red robe of righteousness. Scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Scorned is the term trapa, and it means to rest in a condition of shame. Despised is baza, and it means to be considered as despicable, vile, worthless. To mock is laag, and it means to stammer. In other words, to make fun of someone he was being made fun of. Horrible. So can you imagine being crucified, large nails? I have one of the first century crucifixion nails. It is so big, it's amazing that they're about this long, and the head on them is about at least that big. I mean, they're huge. And the one I have has been broken off. In other words, it's been used. And to pull it back out, you break off the back end of it to pull it back out through the wood and the bone. So can you imagine being crucified, these large crucifixion nails pounded through your wrist, nailed through your ankles, hanging in front of an angry mob of people that you actually know completely naked, not like Hollywood, completely naked and being laughed at, being embarrassed and doing this on purpose so that you could save people who would come from being embarrassed before God. You'll take the embarrassment so that they don't have to. That is love. Verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Batak. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. To trust is 
galal, and it means to roll. The idea is that of rolling stones. They roll to where they are stable. They roll to where they are set, where they're secure. And that's where they come to rest, right? Where they're firm. Yeshua was said to roll to God, to find his stability in God, his final resting place in God. Wow. He goes on. So let him deliver him, not Saul. This Hebrew word means to snatch away. Why would God snatch him from the cross? Because he delights in him. Chafetz. To be pleased with, literally to bend. I love the imagery. It's as though God bends toward the Messiah to be closer to him. Wow. Verses 9 and 10. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. The, the phrase brought me out of the womb is literally who pulled me out of the womb. In other words, the Messiah sees God as being the midwife, the one who caused Messiah's human existence. Where? Verse 10. From birth... I was cast upon you. Another way of translating shalak or cast here is to adventure. In other words, I've been on an adventure with you all of my life. I love that translation. To me, it just speaks volumes. So because Messiah has been completely dependent upon Elohim, the Creator, during his whole experience on earth, he can say this in verse 11. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Far is rachak. It means a, a long way off or distant to wander away. It indicates a great physical distance. He became sin. God was far off. This is how the person in sin feels, that God is far away from them. Don't be far, he says, because Tsara, Karova, trouble is near. Or extreme affliction is about to happen. And there's no one to help. Azar, a root, root word meaning to surround in the sense of either helping or protecting. Nobody's there to surround me. Nobody's there to help me. Nobody's there to, to protect me from what's about to happen. You can see the just the urgency in this now. It's just urgent. Saying, oh my goodness, this is about to happen. This is not going to be good. So because God wasn't surrounding him, others would. Verses 12 and 13. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. You see how we would not get the connection if we didn't understand the Hebrew. You're not surrounding me, they are. Roaring lions, verse 13, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. The imagery of this phrase, strong bulls of Bashan, depicts the strong, brutal force and strength of the Romans. And they were. They tear their prey, it says. 
my dear friend Barry Schwartz, who's the photographer for the Shroud of Turin, points out that the flesh of the body of Messiah was literally ripped. And that's that's a, uh, a shot of the back side of the shroud. Now, whether you believe the shroud to be authentic or not is not the point. The point is, is that who, whatever the shroud is, it depicts a person in exactly the situation as Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, being crucified, being flailed before with 40 lashes, whatever that was, uh, with a flagrum. Uh, horrible. You can see these here. They perfectly match the back. These are broken pieces of glass and pottery, metal shards. They would rip the skin right off the bones. And literally, that's what the shroud indicates. We know historically that's what would have happened to Jesus, Yeshua. This flagrum or cat of nine tails. Well, that's the imagery in the passage as well. Horrible. Ripping the flesh right off the body. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. To be poured out like water is a phrase used for the drink offering, which was a part of the Passover service. It was considered as an act of worship. It was the recognition of God's goodness and that God provides. It indicated a devotion to God and the drink offering was blood red wine and it was for God alone. He says, all my bones are out of joint. This is the direct effect of Roman crucifixion. And the Hebrew phrase, my heart turned to wax indicates deep distress, a loss of strength, of hope, and the expectation of relief. And this may well be what David experienced during his own troubles. You know, he ran from Saul for some 14 years on the run, had to take a hiding, uh, a place of residence with his enemies, the Philistines. But on the other side of it, being with the Philistines, he learned metallurgy. He learned how to craft metal. So when he comes back and he, he's enthroned then as king over Israel, they now have the ability to craft metal for the first time and defend themselves against the Amorites and the, all the other uh, termites and all the other rites out of there. When the body can't move enough to take in a breath, the lungs fill with fluid, causing the heart to lack the room to pump, and this strangulation of the heart causes a burning in the chest and it's as it's trying desperately to continue beating, and it's like and has been described by many like melting wax. Verse 15. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. This is like to me, the imagery here is like having a front row of the crucifixion. John records this in John chapter 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, oh, man, I'm thirsty. Dried up like a potsherd is the image of a useless, broken pottery strewn in the desert. It can no longer hold life-giving water. Mayim chayim. I am poured out. That's the opposite of being Mayim Chaim. I am poured out, he said. I can't even hold water. 
you lay me in the dust of death. This is an imperfect verb in Hebrew. And it, what it indicates is this, that he knew he was in the process of dying. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. To pierce is kara. It means to dig or to bore into, to bore into. Verses 17 and 18. I count all of my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. This is the picture of being stretched out on the cross while Roman soldiers are gambling for your clothing. Psalm 19, uh, verse, uh, chapter 22, forgive me, starting in verse 19 through 22. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers and the congregation. I will praise you. This term, my precious life, in verse 20, is literally my only one. In other words, my only life. So much for the idea of reincarnation, right? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, And as it is appointed to men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ, Messiah, Mashiach, was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I'm going to stop right there. We'll pick up the rest next week. This psalm is so graphic. And when we just read through it in the English, though the English is good, it's just not good enough. It doesn't describe the horrors, the feelings, the loss, the, the fear, the fear of what's going to happen next. The uh, knowing that he's about to be torn to pieces by these brutal Romans. Having all those things in your, in your mind, thinking about that. And then when he actually goes to the cross, his mother Miriam, we call her Mary, is at the foot of the cross, it says. In other words, she's watching this. Now here he's a grown man in his 30s, absolutely naked, stretched out for the whole world to see. He's bloody from head to toe. His mother watches him watches him as he's dying and crying out to God in intense agony, not just breaking his mother's heart, but breaking his heart watching his mother and knowing no one else in the family was even there. No other family members there. It's John, the adopted son, if you will, the close friend of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is the one who takes Jesus's mother and takes her away so she doesn't have to bear the sight of all the rest. At what point in the crucifixion does she leave? We don't know. But we do know as she saw this horrible beginning of it, maybe all the way through. Okay, there's more to cover. We'll pick it up next week uh, in verse 19 of Psalm 22. And then we have more amazing things to talk about. So we will see you next time. Shalom, shalom.